that moment when you think you had your mic turned on during singing, but fortunately I was backwards so good. It was off. You would have known if it was on for sure. Hey, today is Family Worship Sunday, so if you look around, you see a lot of uh, K through fifth graders in the house. And raise your hand if you're kindergarten through fifth grade. All right, good to see you guys. And uh, so you have a notes page, hopefully, and you can take notes and follow along with us. It's great. Also, on the first Sunday of the month, we like to call it First Sunday Prayer and Fast. And we kind of reintroduced this a few months ago after taking a break during COVID of uh, just really focusing in on the first Sunday of each month to be a time to dedicate that, that day as a day of fasting. Now, for some people, that may look like fasting from a meal, fasting for, for food for the entire day. I mentioned last uh, week, or last month, I'm sorry, that consider social media news would be a nice break for the day, uh, just to just get away from that stuff. And as Richard did, talked about this morning, and Family Shepherds talked about the Lord's Day and, and focusing upon God. It's not just a matter of um, not doing certain things, but it's also about turning our focus upon Christ, upon what He's done, and making it something that we redeem this day for God's glory. And so I hope you'll consider doing that and just take a, t- take a chance just to think about it during the message, what you might fast from today in order to more uh, clearly and uh, just m- more focus on God more today than you normally would do. And so today, as we get back in the Gospel of John, I want you to think about for a sec- second, like what things that you believe or things that you don't believe determine your behaviors? All right, think about that for a second. Back in the 90s, I think it was late 80s, early 90s, there was this big campaign on say no to drugs and this is your brain on drugs. But uh, what, we, what we believe about something definitely has an impact on our behavior. I had a friend in college who, after he got to be an adult, married with kids, uh, he was talked into investing all of his life savings into this slam dunk, it can't miss kind of venture that his other that a friend was pulling off, and he took all his money, invested in that, only to find out later that it was a scam, and somewhere along the line, somebody had lied to somebody else, and so he lost everything. So he believed that this would turn out to be good for him, and what he believed mattered enough that he actually took his money and invested it in something, and it didn't turn out so well. I also read an account about a guy named Trey Johnson who decided at, as the clock was running down in a basketball game that they had a one-point lead, he thought that it would be better to pad his stats than to dribble the ball and let the time run out. So he, believing that he was underneath his basket, he laid it in only to realize then that he was under the other team's basket and he scored for the other team and the other team won the game. So the point is, what we believe makes a difference. It really does make a difference. It could be something as big as staying off drugs, it could be something as significant as investing your money, or it could be something you know, as meaningless in the long run as a, as a game. But what we believe about our situations matter. And John is telling us throughout this book, and he's setting down this reason for him writing and just describing and giving us Jesus' life for a reason. And he says over in chapter 20, he's doing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's giving us the account of Jesus' life. He's showing, look at Jesus, look at what he said, look at what he did, because you need to believe in him, because what you do with that matters way more than a basketball game, drugs, 
or what you do with your money. It matters for eternity, says in verse 31 of chapter 20, that by believing you may have life in his name. And other places he says eternal life through Jesus Christ. So as we look at chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is authenticating himself. He's showing to the world through his signs, through his miracles, this is who I am. I am not your average normal guy. God has not only put his spirit on me, but he said back in chapter 1, I'm one with God. He and the Father are one. So as we read about Jesus' first miracle today, think about Jesus, who he is, and if you believed him and you really took his promises and took those to heart, what would change about your life? Let's pray and we'll look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. God, we pray that today Jesus will be exalted and lifted up as he already has been through song and through video. We thank you for just the encouragement of the video with Chuck and Joyce and just how that this church family has come around them to encourage them during this difficult time. And I thank you for Dennis and just his transparency on his video and just what, how his life has been turned upside down these last few months. And I pray that he won't just um, come and be part of this church to just uh, have people walk by and speak and tell him they're glad that he's here, but God, that people will embrace him and, and, and step into his life to encourage him. And God, may he find real community in this place. And God, today, as we just look at Jesus and we lift up Jesus, God, make this real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus' first miracle, as the majority of people who have been raised in church know, was Jesus turning water to wine. If you're newer to the church thing, you don't know the Bible very well, that's okay. That's why we walk through it verse by verse, to help you learn it. And so that's what we're doing today in chapter 2. So Jesus is going to turn water into wine, and he goes to this wedding. He's celebrating a marriage. And so look at verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So he says it's the third day, probably the third day after he chose Nathaniel as his disciple. If you remember last week, he chose his first four disciples. And this area called Cana, which was in Galilee, the area where Jesus was from, it's probably eight or nine miles from where Jesus grew up. So there's a chance that more than likely this was somebody they knew well who was getting married. And so Jesus was invited to this wedding. His mother Mary was there as well. There's no mention of the bride and groom, their name, exact situations, but we know that Jesus goes and he takes his disciples with him. And I think just kind of as a, as a side note to our text today, I think it is significant and it's not accidental that Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding, and Jesus, by the fact that he's at this wedding, he's saying something about the institution of marriage. And we know, if, we, if you're a part of this church, you know we walk through Scripture, and as we walk through Scripture, we want to cover all the things that we cover, because I'm not usually skipping around from topic to topic, and whatever is happening in the world, necessarily we go and grab a, a Scripture text to talk about that issue. So as we come across things in Scripture, it's important to get God's take on this. And so Jesus affirms marriage by his very presence of being at this wedding. And we know from Scripture, and we'll look at a couple of verses in a second, that God created marriage for the purpose of partnership 
intimacy, procreation, and the ability to pursue God together. Scripture says that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they form one flesh. His words, one flesh. But the ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists for the glory of God. Your marriage, if you're married married in here, your marriage exists for the glory of God. And we know, practically speaking, those of us who have kids, that it's so easy to lose focus of the purpose of marriage in the day-to-day grind, right? We know that as we're doing life and as we're running all over the place, sometimes we forget the purpose of our marriage is to point people to Jesus and his love for his church. And then other times, we know that we can go through seasons where we fall into our selfish patterns. Typically, we're blaming our problems on the other person, and we go to even war at some level with our spouse. And so rather than pointing people to Jesus through our marriage, we're actually causing people to look at our marriage and say, really? This is what a Christian marriage is about. And so I'd like to just say at this point that we offer a marriage mentoring program here at this church. And I don't say that to put a plug because it's another program to jump in and be a part of. I'm saying that because it works. It's something that really will help you identify issues in your marriage so that you can, maybe you just need some tweaking or you need just some big time help. And it's an opportunity for you to get with someone and really, really grow so you can fulfill your purpose, which is to glorify Jesus in your relationship. And so I encourage you, even if you think, well, we're not that bad, I encourage you to come and see me. I'll be at the book cart today after the service. See me or one of the staff, and we'd be glad to help you figure out how to get involved in that. You can also, if you're following in the app, there's a link in the app. But in reaffirming marriage, as Jesus attended this marriage with his disciples, Jesus was clear what the purpose of marriage is about. And Scripture is clear. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was asked a question about divorce, he goes all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning, and he affirms Jesus's, or I'm sorry, God's original design for marriage. So Jesus affirms God's original design. Let me just read from Matthew as Jesus quotes Genesis. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So from the beginning, it's clear that God intended a marriage union to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. One man and one woman for a lifetime. And so Jesus affirms this. Paul speaks on it. The scripture is clear about it. And Paul, again, goes on to write that it's this image of Christ loving his church. And marriage represents Christ's harmony, his love, his commitment to us, his people. And so marriage is significant. It's it's important and it's critical. And it is a very late thing, so to speak, in history that people are trying to take God's word and twist them around to try to say something other than marriage is between one man and one woman. And so be aware of that and, and recognize that. It's, not, it's something that is recent. 
Scripture, it's a, it's a shame that we even have to defend this. But here's why we have to defend it is because culture is pushing so hard. Do I even have to tell you that? To redefine marriage. To redefine a relationship that's pleasing in God's eyes. And it's, it's important to remember that God gives us his law, his commands for a purpose. They're for our good. In, in Psalm, David wrote, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In Deuteronomy, God says that his commands are for our good. And so God gives us the guidelines for marriage and human sexuality for a reason. And it is for the good of people. Sean McDowell, apologist, also professor, Biola University, he says this, and I realize it's Family Worship Sunday, so um, I probably just made the kids listen better there, but um, it, it, there's, there's a few words, but it's, it's very benign here. He says, imagine a world where everyone followed God's design for marriage. There would be there would be no sexually transmitted diseases, no abortions, no brokenness from divorce. Every child would have a father and a mother and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers. There would be no rape, no sexual abuse, no sex trafficking, trafficking no pornography, and no need for a Me Too campaign. Think of the healing and wholeness if people simply live Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. The law of the Lord is for our good. And so as Christians, we don't need to apologize. We need to love, regardless of where people are at and what's going on in their life. And, and as I read that quote from Sean McDowell, some of you may be sitting here feeling guilt over maybe experiences that you've had in the past. Maybe you were sinned against in a relationship, and you sit here and you wonder, like, okay, I, I, I messed up. Is it, is, it, is it too late for me? And others, you were the ones who committed the sin in a relationship. You think, is, is there forgiveness for me? Yes, in Christ there is forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is not to make you look back on your past and feel guilt or frustration. It's meant to show you that God's way is perfect. And when we apologize for God's way, then we make a huge mistake. And we lead people down a path that ultimately will not be for their good. It'll be for their destruction. And so we need to remember that and keep that in the forefront of our mind. God is for us. He's not against us. But we miss the point if we forget that Jesus knows what's best. And he knows that a marriage is a union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. His design for marriage is for the good of humanity and is for his glory. Now, I would like to say here a little side note, which is important. If you're single here, don't feel like that you're in a holding pattern or that you've missed out on God's best Please, don't feel that way. In fact, if you look in Scripture, you see that when it deals with singleness head-on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Paul actually writes that being single is more desirable for a Christian than being married. It's more desirable than being married. That's what Paul writes. You can be more active in doing God's will and fulfilling what He has called you to do. And so... The encouragement to singles here is this. 
don't think that you have to wait around until you're married and you have some kids before you can really embrace God's will for your life. Jump in head first and know that God has a blessing for you, that his, him, he is his, your purpose. He is who you should dedicate your life for and be confident in that life. And then for God's design for marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime. So Jesus affirms marriage, and he goes to this wedding. And that's not the point of the text, but I thought it was important to say that. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, changing water to wine is Jesus' first recorded miracle. But I think clearly Mary knows that Jesus has supernatural ability because she comes to him and she says, there's no wine, Jesus. Now, was she just making chit-chat, spreading gossip, or was she really intending for him to do something about it? D.A. Carson says it's more likely that Mary turned to Jesus because she had learned to rely upon his resourcefulness, which may be the case. Many people believe because of silence that Joseph may be dead, so Mary may be single at this point, and possibly because this is in Cana, close to to Nazareth, this is a family wedding, and Mary had a certain official responsibility. Here, she may be embarrassed, so she goes to Jesus. We don't know exactly why. She goes to Jesus, and she prompts him to do something, be resourceful, or do something supernatural. We know for sure she wasn't saying, you and your guys run to the la- down to the convenience store and grab some more bottles. We know that's not an option, so her point is something. She wants something from Jesus here. But look how Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. Okay, kids, family worship Sunday. Look what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I, please don't call your mom woman, all right? In, 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 this culture, in this culture, it was equivalent to saying like ma'am, okay? So if you say woman, you're probably going to lose some teeth, all right? So don't say that to your mom, kids. But it wasn't disrespectful. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross and he was looking to take care of his mom and he looked at John and he said, you know, this is this woman, he referred to her in the exact same way as he was looking to take care of her. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Or why is this my business? Jesus tells her, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus will use this expression, my hour, throughout this gospel. What is he referring to? The hour is his time of his suffering and his death. It's when the perfect Son of God would become sin for us so that we could be made righteous. The hour is why Jesus came to earth. So Mary is apparently asking Jesus to do something to remedy the situation that they're short on wine, and he replies that the hour of his death has not yet come. So how does that apply here? What's the purpose? What's Jesus trying to get at? I think probably the first option of these two is the one that I feel like would be the most accurate. I think he's telling his mother that he and he alone will determine the timetable of his earthly ministry. Not even his mother should be pushing him to do things before his hour is coming. And so it's, it's his and his alone to reveal his identity as the Messiah of Israel. Others believe that the prophets prophesied that during the Messianic age, it would be a time where wine would flow very liberally. And so they're looking to the fact that Jesus 
was uh, entirely correct to say that the hour of great wine, the hour of his glorification, hasn't yet come. And so he's saying, don't, don't speed it up. It's not time for that. Again, I fall in the first camp. I think that he was saying, I need to determine the timetable, not you, not even my mother. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, interesting. Is Mary pushing him? She's like, okay, I'm not taking no for an answer, right? Moms are sometimes good at that, right? You're going to do what I tell you. Even if you're an adult, you're going to do what I say, right? But that's probably not what happened here either. I think she's just content to leave the situation in Jesus' hands. She trusts Jesus. She knows that he's provided. He's there to take care of her. And so she, she's just saying, I'm leaving it in your hands, Jesus, to do what's best. And then verse 6 what happens next is very interesting. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so I have to ask the question of the text as you're reading, what's the purpose of these water jars? Is it more impressive to turn water into wine with jars that are used for purification? Or is this symbolic of something? And I really agree with commentator Matt Carter where he says the inclusion of this detail about these being Jewish purification jars for the Jewish rite of purification, that the inclusion of this detail shows us that rituals associated with the Old Covenant are giving way to something far greater. The shadow that's found in the law has been replaced by the substance, the shadow of the substance. The substance is now here. Jesus is here, and so he's symbolically showing the change that's been made. And I would agree with that, that Jesus brings in the new covenant. When we take communion today, we say, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Everything was pointing to him. And so he tells the servants, Go get these purification jars. And he says, fill these jars. Verse 7, fill these jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. All right, think about this for a second. All right, look at that. All right, how many gallons were these things holding? Um, It says in the text, 20 to 30 gallons each. So we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. All right, I'm not a mathematician, but roughly that's 1,000 bottles of wine. All right. It's a lot of wine. What's going on here? What's Jesus doing? Is, is Jesus encouraging drunkenness? All right, let me bring in a lot of wine so everybody can get really drunk at this party. Absolutely no. There's no chance of that. The Bible clearly forbids us to be drunk. And the New Testament tells us that drunkenness is part of our old life before we came to Jesus. When we came to Jesus, the old is gone the new becomes, is, is our new reality. In 1 Peter 4, 3, Peter writes, you've had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and the terrible worship of idols. So these things are all in the past. So clearly Jesus isn't encouraging drunkenness. Now let me, let me say this again on, on this area of alcohol. Although Scripture, and we're going to see, doesn't flat out forbid us from drinking alcohol, let me just say, it's super dangerous, okay? Plain and simple, it's super dangerous. And there are many of you probably in this room right now 
who are justifying over-drinking, drinking too much, and, and, and justifying it because it's okay, and you're probably in denial of the fact of how serious an issue it really is. Because from my perspective, dealing with a lot of people in this church, in this community, this is a serious problem. And so I want us to be clear that Scripture never, ever justifies drunkenness in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because you can't be filled with the Spirit when you're drunk with wine. When you're drunk, you can't be walking in the way of the Lord and following His commands and doing His will. You're out of control. You're giving your facilities over to debauchery, and you're missing the very reason why you're a new creation, and these things are in the past. Because you've been crucified with Christ, you no longer live. That other guy, that other lady is in the past. That drunkenness and living that way was not the way that God called you to live. And so when you come to Jesus, the old is gone, the new becomes your reality. And so drunkenness must be put away because now you walk in the Spirit. So as you live your life, and as I live my life, I can be fully aware of the opportunities God gives around me to live for His kingdom and His glory. And so, if you're drunk, you're wasted, you're a little inebriated, you're buzz, you got a buzz on, right? How accurately are you really honoring God's will and living for His glory? I don't really think I need to say that, just like I really didn't need to say what I said about marriage, but unfortunately, sometimes we can create a system of justification for about anything we want to do and anything we want to believe. And that's the world that we live in, and Christians were being inundated by this so often that we begin to compromise in so many of these areas. So Scripture never condemns alcohol in itself, but the abuse of alcohol. And sadly, this is an incredibly volatile issue that causes great divisions and harsh judgments among Christians. And if you grew up in a certain denominations, I mean, it was like, that's a sin. You don't touch it. You don't look at it. It's, it's evil. It's wrong to have any drink whatsoever. Uh, a friend of mine who lives in Tallahassee, he said that there are two Southern Baptist churches there. To, uh, that, that There's a lot of Southern Baptist churches. Two Southern Baptist churches. And one Southern Baptist church is teetotaler, you don't drink. The other Southern Baptist church preaches what we do, which is alcohol in itself is not evil, moderation. And so the pastor of the teetotal church referred in a sermon to the other church as Budweiser Baptist. And, and, and I thought, okay, what a great testimony that is for the world, right? That I'm going to call out and condemn things. And that's the danger. While we know that alcohol, we all have to admit that alcohol is extremely dangerous, the truth is when we create a standard that's different than God's standard, when we create a, a law that God doesn't give us a law, and then we begin to use that and begin to judge people based upon our opinions versus what God says in his word, we become like the Pharisees. And that's what happened in, in, in churches like this church I've mentioned over here is we begin to use criteria to judge other people's spirituality and their walk with God uh, in, in things that are man-made, that are extra-biblical, so to speak. So we've got to be really careful of this. Scripture's clear about what it's clear about, and we need to really grab hold of those things and preach those things. But when Scripture gives um, these 
kind of things that where it's not clear in Scripture or it is clear in Scripture that alcohol in itself is not a sin. And we begin to make that a standard by which we judge all people. We're making a grave mistake and we're becoming like the Pharisees. And so I hope you'll hear me clearly here, all right? Because some of you are from that teetotaler background and it's probably wise to stay right where you're at, okay? Because alcohol can be so dangerous. But don't judge your fellow Christians on that. I had a pastor I worked for one point who we went to a guy's house. He was a very wealthy guy in our church, and we went in the house, and the guy wasn't there. I can't remember why we were, we were there, and it was the whole staff. Maybe we were having a meeting there at his house that day around his pool or something, and we walked through, and there was a bar with, with alcoholic drinks and so on, and, and the pastor commented, he said, yeah, we still got some sanctification to do. We, we still spiritual maturity on this guy. And that was his entire litmus test on whether somebody was spiritual or not based upon whether they had alcohol in their house or not on their house. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. And so there's no debate in this passage that Jesus was making alcoholic wine. Even those people like John MacArthur who believes that wine during the time of the Bible was so diluted that it really, you know, would take gallons to make a person drunk. Even he, if you're using his study Bible and looking at the notes, he says, while the Bible condemns drunkenness, it does not necessarily condemn the consumption of wine. And so that's clear in 8 through 10 as we read this. Look what the text says. He says, And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took the wine out, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now now it had become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn it out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Now you have kept the good wine. Until, why have you kept the good wine until now? So his point is, right, you let some people drink some, and then you give the bad stuff because they're not going to really care about the taste at that point. All right, so it's clear what we're talking about. So to reiterate this point is, again, I don't want to encourage anyone to drink against their personal conviction. If it violates your conscience, please do not drink. But let's be honest with Scripture, and let's understand that it's never, never, never right to be drunk. And if you can't walk in the Spirit while holding alcohol or drinking alcohol, then you don't need to drink. So the point is clear. Be careful how you live, Ephesians 5.15. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So... As we come to the climax of this passage, I don't want our discussions of these side issues to allow us to miss what Jesus is getting at here. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus performed this amazing miracle actually altering the molecular composition of water, changing it into wine, not so he could meet the needs of the people, not so his mom wouldn't be embarrassed. Jesus did this to show who he was so others would believe in him. Jesus didn't turn water into wine to meet the needs of the people. He did it to turn sinners into saints, to show us and to show the world who he was. 
And we saw, again, over and over again in, verse, in chapter 1, Jesus was God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's so radical to think about God becoming flesh, that Jesus did sign after sign and miracle after miracle for the purpose of proving that he was who he said he was. He did this to authenticate his ministry. And what you believe matters. And if you believe that Jesus is who he is, who he said he was, and he has the power to do what he did, then we trust him. And we give our life to him, not just for salvation, but for everything. So can Jesus be trusted? I think one of the the best illustrations that I've seen, I've used this before several years back, of this idea of trust. And if if Keith, can you help me um, over here and grab that wheelbarrow? It's underneath that black tarp there. Wheel it over and I'll help you get to the stage. Rig's going to help me up here for a second. Yeah, just pull that up here. Throw that, you can throw that off. Just. How you doing, Riggs? Thanks, Keith. So we're going to wheel this over here to the middle. And you can just stand here and look cute so everybody pays attention, all right? There you go. True story. There was a guy named Charles Blauden back in the 1800s who would walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And some of you have heard this story before. Great story, though. He would walk across this tightrope. And as people gathered and as the word got out about this guy, more and more people came to see his daring feats. And in fact, as he walked across this 160 feet tightrope, he would get better and better at it. And over time, he would do crazy things like riding a bicycle across it, He would walk across it blindfolded. He even walked across it on stilts. Crazy, right? And he pushed a wheelbarrow across it. And people would cheer and clap and hooray because of these amazing things that Charles did. And one day he said, hey, who thinks that I can push a person in this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? Nearly every hand went up because they've seen the incredible things that he did. They knew that he could, he could be trusted to do this. Then he said, hey, I need a volunteer from the audience to get in this thing. Can you stand right there? Can, to get in this thing and let me push you across. True story, no takers. Lance, would you let Riggs go across in this? I know Allie would, not I don't even have to ask her that. You may, because that's why I'm asking. Nobody would put your child in a situation like that, because you've seen him do it dozens of times, and you say you believe, but would you give your life to it? Would you entrust yourself to it? Thank you, Riggs. Give this guy a hand. Appreciate it. And that's what I want us to close up here today with that thought, thought in our minds. Jesus manifested his glory, the scripture says. That's our head application. Jesus manifested his glory. He revealed himself for who he was. And today, even though we're years from when Jesus actually changed the water into wine, a verse in Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says this, You love him even though you've never seen him. 
So he's talking to people who've never actually seen Jesus. They weren't there when he changed it and the water into wine. He said, though you do not see him, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So can we trust the promises of God? Can we trust Jesus enough to give our life and, a little tougher here, to give our children's life? To Jesus. To say, I don't just want to be satisfied with my child coming to Christ, but I want them to be used for whatever purpose he wants for them. And that could be meaning to go thousands of miles away like my brother Mark did, and other missionaries, Chuck and Joyce. Or it could mean just right here in Bainbridge, serving God faithfully. But it makes us question, do we trust Jesus enough to give ourselves and give our families over to him? Because it will prove itself out through our actions. Because what you believe matters. If you say, I believe that it's important to spend time daily with Jesus, then your actions authenticate whether or not you believe that. If you say, I can trust Jesus when he said, don't hoard up for yourself, but trust God to take care of you like he, trusts, like he takes care of the lilies of the field and, and the birds of the air. And we say, no, now that one, probably not. I need to be prepared, fully prepared. And we go way beyond being prepared, right? And we just hoard and so that's where the wheelbarrow meets the tightrope, is do we trust and believe Jesus or not? So he manifested himself, do you believe? And I love the story of Mark where the centurion said to Jesus about healing his son, he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's where I'm at most of the time, right? God, your promises, I believe them. But I need help really believing them, right? I, I believe that you can guide me and lead me and give me the words to say in this relationship or situation, or you can help me lead my family as a family shepherd. But I need help because I, 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 need, I, I have some unbelief still. I'm still struggling. Admit that. Admit that to God. He knows it anyway. And then finally, our hands. Today as we take communion... This is about the most hands-on application that you can have. Right? Here's what I want you to do. Before you stir around, look for your cup, listen to me. This is the time where Jesus gave us to say, slow down, focus in, take this in remembrance of me. You see, the more that you see Jesus and his power and his faithfulness, the more you're going to trust yourself to him. And so don't just hurry through this. See Jesus in this activity that many of you have done hundreds of times. Ask Jesus, reveal yourself. Take this time to say, manifest your glory. Show me your glory. Help my unbelief. So we're going to take just a minute just to pause and close our eyes. And raise your hand, and the deacons will come around if you did not get a cup on your way in.
Raise it nice and high where they'll see you. And we're just going to be quiet and still for just a minute while they pass those out. And I hope you'll take this time to look to Jesus.